Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, July 12, 2019. Be a longer episode than normal. After the new format, anything goes. It could be short, it could be long, you never know. It just depends on what I'm grinding on. Was I trying to rhyme? <laughs> Not on purpose. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah. <laughs> Weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelicals, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, and it's just generally a huge mess out there. Now, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to be doing two things today. Two, yeah, two things. Uh, first, we're going to be listening to a sermon that I recently delivered. And it is going to be on the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. And we'll title the sermon, Where Do You Go to Hear the Voice of God? We'll take a break after the sermon. And uh, this will give you an opportunity to hear how I exegete a biblical text, especially from the Gospel. And then uh, on the other end of the break, what we're going to do is we're going to be listening to the uh, Sunday School lesson, the adult Bible study lesson that I gave the same day that I delivered this sermon. And the name of that Sunday School lesson is The One Who Hears You Hears Me. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable and uh, since we're, I guess we're going to be doing a sermon, it would, technically this would fall into the category of a sermon review, let's uh, pull into uh, the traditions of, uh, of episodes past and let's do this. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. Pastor Chris Rosebro presiding. The sermon is taken from the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And uh, verses 1 to 20. And uh, the question being put on the table is, where do you go to hear the voice of God? Where do you go to hear the voice of God? So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Pastor Chris Rosebro, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money sack, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go to its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable on the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. In the name of Jesus. Here again, these words from our gospel text. Jesus said, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects uh, me, rejects him who sent me. Now, this is an important thing of, of Christ's teaching that we must kind of sort out properly because this is the, the teaching that when people embrace it, pastors embrace it, oftentimes they will be accused of being a little too uppity or being cult leaders or something like that. And let's make this perfectly clear. A cult leader is one who deviates from sound biblical doctrine and claims to have a special track with God, that they have 
uh, they have knowledge that nobody else has and may be even able to communicate directly to God conversationally and God talks to them. And then in, in so doing, then they reveal new doctrines. You think of cult leaders like uh, Joseph Smith of Mormonism, right? He, they have all this other biblical revelation. But in properly understanding the office of the ministry, the office of the pastoral office, think of it this way. When a pastor is correctly exegeting God's word and proclaiming to you what God's word really says, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins and is rightly dividing the word of God, then you can say in a very real way that you're not hearing that pastor's voice. You're hearing the voice of God. God is speaking to you through that sinful man. And that's exactly what Christ is saying here. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Notice it goes all the way up the chain of command, if you would. Now, by way of kind of giving you a a, a negative way of not understanding this correctly, have any of you ever heard someone say, "I, I don't need a man to tell me that my sins are forgiven? Have you ever heard somebody talk like Maybe you've said that. I've said it before, right? I don't need a man to tell me that my sins are forgiven. Or how about this idea? Uh, listen, I can take my Bible and go out into nature. I can confess my sins and pray and commune with God all by myself. And that song comes back to mind. All by myself. <laughs> right? All right. Well, now, I want to make something clear. You definitely can pray to God all by yourself. This is most certainly true. But there's something off here, and then we'll see if we can put our finger on it. Um, think of the, uh, the, the late Frank Lloyd Wright. He had a quote that he is famous for. He said, I attend the greatest of all churches, and I put a capital N on nature, and I call it my church. This one's a little bit more mystical. Maybe you've heard somebody talk this way. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, Nature is my church and love is my religion. (laughs) You have to say it that way, by the way. Love. All right. All right. So then, of course, we've already talked about people say, well, I don't need to go to church to pray. I don't need to go to church to worship God. And this is correct. And then I think of the blogger, the uh, Pastor Carl Vatters, and uh, he's an evangelical pastor. And listen to this quote of his from a, a blog post from last year. He says, listen, I don't go to church to worship Jesus. Now, hold on a second here. Let's, let's put this in context, because he knows that this is, a, this is stirring the pot kind of statement. He says, now, hear me out. It's not as bad as it sounds. Anyone can worship Jesus anywhere at any time. We don't need a special building, a special day, or a special time to do it. We don't come into the presence of God when we enter a church building, and we don't leave his presence when the service is over. So you note here there's something off. And the question is, where do we, how do we pin this down? You know, say, because what he's saying is technically true, but it's like one of those statements where you say you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Something's off here. And then note what he says. He says, since the day of Pentecost, all believers have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's true. He says, and that Holy Spirit lives in us from the moment of salvation. And so we carry his presence with us. Emphasis on the wrong syllable. This means that every act of our lives, whether alone or in the company of others, can and should be an act of worship. You see, but we we note that something interesting. You know, how, how does how does the church service begin here? 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus say? Where two or more are gathered in my name, I am present among them. And then today, oh yeah, this is something interesting. Something interesting is going to happen today. Because today, you're going to hear me say these words, take, eat. This is the true body of Christ given for you. Take, drink. This is the true blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So there is a way in which we can talk about the sacramental presence of Christ or the presence of Christ as Christ has promised where two or more are gathered in his name. And that's a little bit different than the omnipresence of God or even the indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit. So something's off here. And you're going to note that the direction is always running in, this, in one way with, when people are talking this way. So he says, listen, I, I go to church every weekend, several times a week, actually. And I, I would go that regularly, even if I wasn't a pastor. Why? And then he says, I don't go to church to worship Jesus. I go to church to worship Jesus with other people. Yeah, okay. And so because I need to worship Jesus in the company of others, we all do. I need to worship Jesus along with people I know, people I don't know, people who know me, and people I share life with, people I share common beliefs with, and people I disagree with, and people who love me anyway, and people I have to love anyway. Now, granted, we are not to despise or forsake the gathering of the saints, the communion of the saints. This is most certainly true. But again, it's like, it's like when my wife makes one of these wonderful dishes and she says, Chris, I need you to come down and taste this. So I taste it and it's like, yeah, you know, there's something missing here. And she goes, what do I need to add? And I go, mm, salt and pepper. <laughs> yeah, And how much? A lot. It's running really flat here. So... So the stew here is missing an ingredient. And the ingredient is this. And again, here are the words of Jesus. The one who hears you, hears me. So you'll note the direction in all of these things is from us to God. So my question for somebody who believes in this way is, where do you go to hear the voice of God? Definitively, authoritatively. Where do you go to hear God's voice? I mean, it's great that he hears from you, but when do you get to hear from him? And you'll note that that's a missing component in their theology. Everything runs only in one direction, from us to him. And so that's the problem. Now, all of that is just to frame what we're going to be working on in our text today. So in Luke chapter 10, our text says... Jesus appointed 72 others, sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Why 72? Why not 100? Why not that amazing number, 42? That's the answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Why not 42? How come he didn't send 12? 97. Why didn't he send that? There's actually a reason for this biblically. And it's, this takes us to one of those dry, gravelly portions of Scripture that every year when you make that New Year's commitment that you're going to read through the Bible in the year, you get to this chapter and you skim it you, because it's dry. You just skim it. Let me, let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 10 and 11 are the texts that I'm referring to. And so it, it's early in January. You're now to that part where you're dedicated. I'm going to read all the way through the Bible. You hit this chapter and it reads this way. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born after the flood. 
the son of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, Tiraz, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Torgamah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, Dodanin, and from these... <laughs> right? I, it, maybe it's just me. <laughs> but here's the idea. If you read the ancients on this, everybody refers to chapters 10 and 11 as the table of nations. And when you count up the nations that are mentioned here of the descendants of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you come up with the number 72. There were 72 nations. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, funny enough, he's not referring to the United States of America as a nation. That's a nation state. His antecedent are the 72 nations in the table of nations in Genesis. And so we see then in this text something quite brilliant, and that is, is that Christ here in the sending out of the 72, this is kind of a symbolic precursor to the Great Commission. You know, it's depicting the work of the church as it goes and proclaims the gospel to all nations, 72. Now, a little bit of a note. Here's what Martin Luther talked about regarding Genesis 10 and 11, the table of nations. He says, whenever I read these names, I think of the wretched state of the human race. Even though we have the most excellent gift of reason, we are nevertheless so overwhelmed by misfortunes that we are ignorant not only of our own origin and the lineal descent of our ancestors, but even of God himself, our creator. Look into the historical accounts of all the nations. If it were not for Moses alone, what would you know about the origin of man? That's a great quote. What would you know about? The answer is nothing. I mean, my wife decided to do the two-week free thing on Ancestry.com. I'm looking at the prices and going, oh, please, you know, cut cut that thing off before the the two weeks is over, right? But the thing is, Ancestry.com, and look at all the people who are dedicated to trying to figure out their genealogies. Who are you? Where did you come from? Who are your ancestors? How far back can you go? I've already talked about how sketchy my my ancestors are. And it's just, it's not a pretty picture. I'm just saying. You know, and there's Irish involved too. We haven't, we haven't talked about that side. Okay. But the idea then is, is that all of the nations then find themselves because of sin in total darkness under the dominion of the devil. So much so that we not only don't know where we got, came from. You know, you, you might generically know, well, I'm Norwegian, but how far back can you name your grandparents, right? But then worse than that, we don't even know where we came from. How did we get to be on this planet in the first place? And if it were not for Moses and God writing the, gen- the book of Genesis through him, we wouldn't know any of this stuff. And so that's the message that goes out. The gospel goes out then to these nations who are in darkness. And God chose from one nation, the nation that is named Eber. This is where we get the word Hebrew from, can you hear it, right? Who are descendants of Shem, which is why they're called Semites, right? It is through that one nation that God chose that the Messiah would come through, the promised one who would crush the head of the serpent. So then, coming back to our text here, we kind of see what's going on. Jesus is sending 72 out, and so the 72, the sending of them, is 
uh, is one of the foundation stones of the concept, biblically, of the office of the holy ministry. His words are their words. In other words, as a pastor, I'm called to preach the word. I'm not authorized to give you my opinions. I'm not authorized to claim that I'm receiving direct revelation from God or God laying things on my heart that I'm supposed to share from the pulpit. Nope. I'm to preach the word. So when I'm preaching his words, you're hearing him, not me. Same, by the way, when you go and you preach the gospel and you proclaim what Christ has done for people and call them to repent and to be forgiven in Christ, your words are no longer your words. You are speaking the words of Christ. And then God is making his appeal to them through you. In fact, Scripture talks explicitly, exactly in those terms. So the idea then is, is that the office of the holy ministry, the one who hears the pastor, hears Christ, if he's preaching the word correctly, as a called and ordained servant of the word, you heard me say this, as a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, I forgive you all of your sins. It's not because I'm special. I'm really not. So the idea here is when you hear me say, I forgive you all of your sins, I'm just saying what Jesus said because Jesus said, the sins you forgive will have already been forgiven. The sins you retain are already retained. So I just get to be the mouth of Jesus saying his words so that you can hear him, hear from him. So the 72 then signify the fullness of the church, which is scattered throughout the world, and it embraces all nations. Their sending then is a snapshot of the church sent after the Great Commission, after Christ's ascension, sent to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching, preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And then note then, that being the case, consider the urgency with which Christ is talking here. He says, listen, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. Now, a little bit of a note. Grew up in Southern California. I know this much. No, wait. Smaller. That much about farming. All right. But the one thing I've noticed here is that every time the harvest comes around, it's an all-hands-on-deck affair. You know, just, you know, can I help? Yes, go, get, get out there and help. We've got to get the stuff out of the ground. We've got to bring it into wherever we need to bring it into. And there's a whole people who have this huge portion of their, their income supplemented during the harvest time. But again, it comes at a cost because oftentimes I've seen here the farmers are working around the clock. I mean, come out here on a late September evening at midnight and you're likely to see three combines. They look like spaceships have landed. We're being invaded by Mars. And they're out there harvesting beans and stuff, right? In the middle of the night. Because when the harvest is out, when the harvest is plentiful, you need as many laborers as you can. Consider the urgency. And then note this, there's danger involved as well. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Could we please work on this, Jesus? Because I don't know if you've noticed, lambs have like zero natural defenses against wolves. So we get to do this harvesting thing as little lammies among wolves. Yay, that's fun. Okay, so note the danger involved. And then also note this, that the expectation then is, as it says in other passages, that those who preach the gospel, that it is God's will, that they make their living from preaching the gospel. So carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. And that's the idea. 
You know, the way, worker is worth his wages. So bring nothing with you. Make your living from the preaching of the gospel. And then also then note that those who are going out and preaching the kingdom, preaching the good news of Christ, that they are considered by Christ to be ambassadors of peace. Shalom. And shalom is a lot more than just peace as we understand it. A ceasing of hostilities. Shalom is a more holistic way of looking at peace. Peace in your body. Peace, peace in your relationships. It's kind of like the Hawaiian word aloha. Right? So, shalom, aloha. Right? <laughs> I need to work on my delivery. Anyway, and so he says this. Whatever house you enter, say to it, Shalom, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it's going to remain, it's going to return to you. So remain in the house. And then notice the reiteration, eating and drinking what they provide. The laborer deserves his wages. You make your living from the gospel. So do not go from house to house. And then important to note here, kind of a nuance here, and this is important for us to keep in mind, that human beings do not build the kingdom of God. We don't. That's just how it is. We get to preach it. We get to proclaim it. But we're not the ones building it. What does Paul say? The one who plants, the one who waters are nothing. It's God who gives the increase. So whenever you enter a town and they receive you, it says, heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So we're not the ones who build the kingdom of God. We proclaim it. And there's a big difference, by the way, huge difference. Sometime, uh, sometimes one gets the impression that the kingdom of God is some building uh, or project of our own doing, and that's not the case at all. The kingdom of God is not built on our efforts. The kingdom of God is built on the efforts and the works of Christ. A good way to put it is this way. It is not with our blood. It is not with our sweat, our, our tears, that the kingdom is built. It is built by the shed blood of Christ. And you think of the blood that he sweat in the garden, on the Mount of Olives on the night that he was betrayed, and the tears that he cried in his prayers for all of his saints and the ones whom the Father had given him. You see, the kingdom is built by the blood, the sweat, and the tears of Jesus. He does the work. We are called to announce the good news and to declare his victory and that it is finished in him. But also then note that peace is rejectable. It's rejectable. If you're not clear on this, remember the lambs and wolves thingy. Okay, it's rejectable. So whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, which is a real possibility... You go into the streets and you say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. You don't sit there and go, well, maybe I need to work on my delivery. Maybe I can figure out how to make the message a little bit more relevant so that they'll accept it. You know, all right. I mean, if I mean, seriously, think about this for a second. You go and you proclaim in Christ, there is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's all given as a gift. Repent, be forgiven. And they go. Meh. Nah. No way. Get out. Let me take another crack at it. Let me, you know, Jesus can make your life at work better. You're boring me now, right? You're not, you're not authorized to do this. So what do you do when people reject the message, the good news of Christ? Remember, the one who hears you hears Christ. You are an ambassador. 
God is making his appeal through you to them. And they go, nope. So when that happens, remember, it's harvest time. We've got a lot of work to do. This part of the field's going to spoil. There's no way around it. So Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet, wipe it off. And say, listen, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near you. And then Jesus says, I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Whew. I mean, Sodom is the archetype of evil. They suffered a destruction of God, fire raining down from heaven, definitive judgment against their wickedness. And Jesus is saying, yeah, listen, it's going to be a lot easier on the day of judgment for Sodom than for people who reject the good news of Christ. And then to make the point, Jesus names a few names. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and for Sidon than for you. Oh, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Nope. You'll be brought down to Hades, to hell itself. And then again, listen to the words. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, him who sent me. Now you see the context. So consider then our question, all right? Is the problem here at Kongsvinger that the pastor's uppity and that he's a cult leader because he forgives sins? No, I was told to do that by Jesus. So I say these words, I forgive you all of your sins. And believe me, I, there's nothing special about me. The next guy who eventually will follow me here at Kongsvinger. He'll say the same thing. I forgive you all of your sins. And then the guy after that guy, he'll say the same thing too. All right. And the reason why is simple, because these are the words that Christ gave us to speak. I forgive you all of your sins. So note then, coming back to the problem, when we think it's all about me and I can worship God and I have freedom to pray anywhere, you do. The question is, where are you coming? Where has God promised that his voice will be there speaking to you? Where do you go to hear from God? So today God told you, not me, he did, and I'm not God. If, so just don't think I'm not, I'm not. But God told you he forgives you all of your sins. He said it through me. Today he will tell you this is the body of Christ, broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is the blood of Christ, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Note, God is speaking to you. These words from Jesus, can you trust them? Yeah, you can. So the one who hears you, hears me, Christ says. And so, there the gospel goes out. And then the 72 come back and they say, Lord, the demons even are subject to us in your name. We were kicking some major demonic Heine, you know, but, you know, whatever. You, you get the point. And Jesus said, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. But nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Because note again, who's doing all the flexing of power and muscles here when it comes to the demonic? It's not the person doing that. It's Christ He's doing all the heavy lifting yet again. And so Jesus says to rejoice in this instead. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what we are to rejoice in. 
So with this picture then of the work of the church as she's sent to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, knowing that when people hear us, that they are hearing the voice of Christ and God is making his appeal to them through us, then let us be comforted then because we know that where two or more are gathered, that Christ is here present today. He is here present today for you, to comfort you. And the words that he speaks to you today are that though your sins be as scarlet, he has made them white as snow. Though you have come here falling short in thought, word, deed, by what you've done and by what you've not done, that he has bled and died for you, that your sins are forgiven, that you are bled for, that you are died for, and that you are in him. And the greatest news of all is by grace through faith as a gift, your names are now written in heaven. These are Christ's words to you today to comfort you, to assure you, to feed your faith, to sustain you as you, a little lamb, are among the wolves today in Christ's harvest field, urgently working to tell the world the good news that Christ has bled and died for them. You are bled and died for. So rest, little church, little lambs of Jesus. Rest and know that although the devil rages against you, that nothing will harm you. Nothing will harm you, for he has defeated the devil for you, and your your names are written in heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. We're up on our uh, first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to be listening to the Sunday School lesson I delivered on this exact same day that I delivered this sermon And uh, the name of it is titled, The One Who Hears You, Hears Me. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book, Every Day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. 
I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they's always having that 25-cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing and have made some not-so-nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, But Saturday is so much better. With everyday being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! Exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and... It's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. 
That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that um, the voice of God is going to be here and heard in God's Word, rightly preached and taught. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, Fighting for the Faith. Dot com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew, the other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly financial commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a fantastic way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you, if you'd like to support us by becoming a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional analog way, you can do that as well by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's episode, kind of a long one. Uh, we're going to be listening to a, the Sunday School lesson I delivered on the same, the same day that I delivered the sermon you just listened to, and the name of this one is The One Who Hears You, Hears Me. Here we go. Okay, real quick, um, I'm going to have, if you have questions regarding the sermon, since we're going to be in the same topic, I want you to hang on to them for just a little bit. I want to build off of the text from the Gospel of John, uh, uh, Luke, sorry, Luke 10 that we uh, heard today. Luke 10, 16, hear again the words of Christ. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now, real quick question, this is not a trick question. Um, who's the one speaking here? Jesus. Jesus, all right, Jesus is the one speaking. Um, the red letters are kind of a clue. Um, when did Jesus write this? Who wrote this? Who wrote these words? Luke. All right, so you're going to note something here. Luke wrote these words, and although Luke wrote these words... Who is speaking to us through these words? Jesus. And so this is an interesting aspect of what Christ is saying here. And you know that this is even playing out in the very text itself. The one who hears Luke here is actually hearing Christ. The one who rejects Luke here isn't rejecting Luke. Who is he rejecting? Christ. Because he's the one speaking to us. And this is the unique nature of the scriptures themselves. And so you'll note then, when it comes to um, 
voices claiming to come from God. The question is, where can we go to trust that what we are hearing is the actual voice of God, the voice of Christ? Where can we go? We can go in the Bible. There are a lot of competing voices today, a lot of competing voices. There are a lot of people who claim that they have a special anointing, that they have a prophetic gift. Uh, there are a lot of people who are, you know, outside of kind of normal Christianity, involved in actual cults, um, and they've got secondary authorities and stuff like this regarding the, the voice of God. But you know, it, when it comes down to competing voices, I mean, if I were to tell you that last night I had the most vivid dream ever, and that God was speaking to me, and that I had coffee with the archangel Michael. And that he told me that he wants you guys to all stock up on military weapons so that we can fight the Antichrist when he shows up next Thursday. Okay. Is my dream the voice of God? You, you look you look skeptical, Mark. I'm really I'm hurt here, man. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the thing is, is that where, when we talk about hearing the voice of God, I think it's important for us to look back at how Scripture talks about itself. Now, a lot of times people get this really interesting idea you know, because we have a Bible. I'm, Mark, you, he, perfectly great example here. Look at that leather. Look, whew, and the gold leaf on the outside. You even have tabs, man. For, yeah, that, that, that's a good-looking Bible, man. All right? So, it, so you sit there and you go, the Bible is one book. It, it really isn't. The Bible's a library. It's a collection. It's a compendium. It, it, is a, it is a group of texts written over a long, long period of time by multiple authors. 66 authors, 38, 40-something authors, depending on who you think and wrote what certain things that we're not sure about. And how do you know, how do you have confidence that what you're reading there is the actual voice of God? Test the prophecies. Well, you have to well, test them against what? You know? The authors all agree. Well, they, they seem to, yeah. That, that may not be the best... Um, the best method of kind of sorting that out because there's a lot of atheists and skeptics who've made a career out of trying to find discrepancies within the Bible to say that the Bible is nonsense. At least that's their claim. But how do you have confidence that what you're hearing is God's voice in it? Okay, now that's a great answer. You cheated. That's like the standard Sunday school answer, though. <laughs> but it's really good. It's a good answer. <laughs> So what we're going to do, we're going to do a little bit of work today, in, and we're going to pay attention to a few things. And so, because Marilyn has given us the standard Sunday school answer in talking about Jesus, we're going to take a look at a few things that Jesus said. So let's take a look first at the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Gospel of John, chapter 5. And in this text in particular, Jesus is telling us something uh, about the Scriptures themselves. And so we're, we're going to pay attention to his words. And 
we're going to note then his relation to the Father as he's kind of you know, sorting this, this text out. And so we're going to apply what I like to call my three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context. I don't like verses out of context. I like to see what's going on in the passage so that we can pay attention to it. But in the Gospel of John chapter 5, starting at verse 19, Jesus told them, and this is he's talking to the Jews and the and the ones who were seeking to kill him, you know, that's, you know, <clears throat> quite the group here. This was the why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's a, we'll just say that's a tough crowd. So Jesus said to that group, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the son does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And you'll note, this is, this, you can kind of see how this piggybacks on what we heard Jesus say. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So you'll know the intimate connection between uh, Christ and his words and Christ and the Father. 24, truly, truly, I say to you, and listen to the words, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has presently, now, eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He is passed from death to life. Who, is, who, who says this? Jesus says this. Who wrote this? John. So you know, you're hearing the words of Christ through the Apostle John. And so Jesus is telling you, everyone who believes in Him has passed from death to life and does not come into judgment. That's quite the claim. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So I can do nothing on my, own, on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. Now I want you to pay attention to what he's saying here. Verse 32, Jesus says, There is another who bears witness about me. And let's see what that turns out to be. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me and that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So note here, the Father himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for, it, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
So here you're going to note that Christ is talking about the voice of the Father that is bearing witness about Christ. And he's saying to those Jews who want to kill him that they have not heard his voice. And the fact that the, that, that the proof that he's given that they haven't is that they don't believe him. That's the proof. So his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And you search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you might have life. So you'll note here, the one that Jesus says bears witness about him is the Father. And he's saying that the Father has borne witness about him through the written word of God. The scriptures themselves. You see the connection? And who are the Scriptures about? Christ. Now, up to this point, how many books of the Bible? Don't give me a number. Which of the books of the Bible have been written? Only the Old Testament. Up to the point when Jesus says this, there's only one body of work that you can go to, a collection of works, and that's you would refer to it you know, as the Tanakh. The Tanakh, that's the fancy Hebrew way of saying the Old Testament. And the Tanakh is comprised of three sections. The first five books called Torah. The next group are the writings. And then after that, the prophets. And Jesus, in his ministry, he quotes from all three parts of the Tanakh and he refers to different passages from within those three portions as the Word of God. He says, those are the Word of God. I'll give you an example of that in just a little bit. So, God, so Christ himself, you can say, puts his stamp of approval on the Tanakh and definitively says, God said, God commanded, these are the words of God. He spoke to you. This is the way Jesus talks about how God speaks to us through the Scriptures. And you're going to note then that Christ is pointing to the Scriptures and saying they are the ones that testify about Him and that this is the very voice of the Father speaking in the biblical texts. Now, a little bit of a side note. Oftentimes, if you have Roman Catholic friends, they're going to bring up the Apocrypha and claim that you have an incomplete Bible. Nowhere. At no time does Jesus quote an Apocrypha text and say that it is, it is the Word of God. It's never quoted, not one section of the Apocrypha is quoted by Christ as, being, as coming from God. Interesting, right? Okay. So, keep that in mind. So, the Scriptures are testifying about Him, and that's a good way to put it. Now, I'm following an outline I want to check the next text. Okay, I want you to take a look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Paul's wrapping up his argument that he began in chapter 1. And as he's wrapping things up, he's going to talk about what, you know, is there any advantage for the Jews? Because he's been kind of harping on the Gentiles and the pagans. And then he's now switching the subject because he's going to make it so that everybody both Jew and Gentile, is under sin and is guilty of breaking God's commands. But in leading up to that portion, Paul writes in Romans 3.1, So what advantage has the Jew? 
what is the value of circumcision? He says, well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the, with the oracles of God. Now, that's a fancy word. We don't use that a lot, by the way. Now, I'm going to show you this in the Greek. Oh, man, why is my Greek so small? I keep doing that to myself. I'm going to show you to this in the Greek. And it says, talking about that, that because they were entrusted, talogia, this word logia is um, from logion. Uh, they were entrusted with the very words of God. So talogia tutheo, they were entrusted with the very words, oracles, revelations. These are ways we can talk about legion. These are the very words of God themselves. And if you were to check different English translations, some English translations take logion and translate it as words. So whose words comprise the Tanakh? God's words. Now remember, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Jesus is being tempted by the devil. The devil is saying, turn these you know, stones into bread. Jump off the temple. I'll give you all of these things. How did Jesus defeat the devil? The Word. Jesus always fought back by saying, it is written. It is written. So you know, the Christ Himself wields the Word of God, and in the way He wields it against the devil, He wields it with the assumption that the words He is speaking when He says it is written have none other than God Himself as the authority, the one who is speaking. In other words, in the Tanakh, we know for a fact God is the one speaking to us in these words. God is talking. We can hear His voice when we read the Bible. You know, that crazy lady on TBN, not so much. You know, there's good reason you're not hearing God's voice in her. All right? Next text. I think we're going to be in 1 Peter. Let me double check. Yep, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 10. Again, context. Particularly, we're going to take a look at a few things. Peter writing in 1 Peter says, concerning the salvation, the salvation that is revealed, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so you're going to note here, Peter here is talking about how the, the Old Testament is prophetic and that the Spirit of Christ Himself was at work in giving us the revelations that we find in the Old Testament and the very revelations that we heard Jesus say in John chapter 5 testified about Him. And so even the prophets, when they wrote their words down, which are recorded for us in Scriptures, they were searching through them in order to figure out when all of this was going to take place. And so it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even the angels long to look. 
Isn't that interesting? All right? And so you'll note here that he is taking the good news, the euangelion, the gospel of Christ, and saying that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in the preaching of the good news, and he's equating it, he's putting it on the same level. And you'll see this in verse 25, the same level as the written word of God that he's referencing from the Old Testament. So then he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, and you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him you are believers in God. Now I can do a whole sermon or lesson on this idea then. Note that we are believers in God because of Christ. Christ has made us to be believers. So, so we are believers in him who through, through him we are believers who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope now are in God. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding word of God. So note then, watch what he says. You have been born again through the living, abiding word of God. And that's going to be an important thing. So note, he's, he's saying something is the word of God. And now he's going to quote the prophet Isaiah. He's going to quote Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. And he says this, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And if you were to take a look at the cross-reference in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, it would say the word of Yahweh, that's the name of God, remains forever. And watch what Peter says. And this word that remains forever is the good news that was preached to you. Isn't that interesting? So now the very gospel that has gone out, preached by the apostles, Peter says, that is the living, abiding word of God by which we were made believers. Paul says it in Romans 10. He says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's God's words, His voice that makes us alive in Christ, causes us to be born again, forgives us of our sins, and it is God's voice who is speaking to us in the very words of Scripture. Fascinating. Now, any questions as to whether or not the Old Testament is the Word of God? Let's throw one more thing into the mix here. Because again, the question always comes up, who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? And so let's take a look again at a passage that I come back to fairly regularly. Mark chapter 7. 
And I, and I want to look at this passage in light of hearing the voice of God. How do we hear God's voice? And this is a text where it's always important to note, and I've said this before, always good to review though, that the Pharisees were heretics. They were not truly Bible-believing Jews. The Pharisees are nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh. They rise up in the intertestamental period. And as part of their claim, their claim, this was their narrative, that when Moses ascended Mount Sinai, God gave him two Torahs, not one. The first Torah was written. The second Torah was entrusted, they claimed, to the elders of Israel. And it was an oral Torah. You heard it. And their claim was is that God gave the oral Torah so that the Gentiles would never know the whole truth so that they couldn't be saved. That was their narrative. And so that body of work, the oral Torah, was called the tradition of the elders. You've got to capitalize it because it's a body of work. It's an actual thing. And so Jesus, and we can see this in this text, told his disciples, you will not obey any of the commands of the tradition of the elders. And this set the Pharisees off. This was the hill they wanted to die on. Because if the tradition of the elders is not authoritatively God's word and his voice is not being spoken through it, their whole industry, their whole business that they've set up religiously is nothing but flimflam and lies. And they know it. And so this is the hill they're going to die on. And let me pull something up in the Old Testament just as a preparation because I want you to see this. I'm going to type in the word walk, and I'm going to add a modifier so that we have the modifiers, commandments. Walk and commandments. All right, now we're there. So watch how this works. So the Pharisees gathered to Jesus, Mark 7, some of the scribes, and they came from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, and here's the reason why, holding to, and this is the body of work, the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Now, that's a loaded question, and you have, to, you have to hear the sentence the way it's meant to be heard. Listen to these passages of Scripture, because the concept of walking according to something, or walking in, is a very Hebrew way of talking. Walk, yalach, in the Hebrew here, is talking about how you conduct your life. So Leviticus 26.3, if you walk in my statutes, observe my commandments and do them. Deuteronomy 8.6, you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking 
in His ways and by fearing Him. Deuteronomy 11.22 If you will be careful to do all His commandment that I command you to do, loving Yahweh your God, walking in all His ways, holding fast to Him. And Deuteronomy 13, a a text I'm hoping to get into today a little bit. You shall walk after Yahweh your God, fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. You kind of get the idea. Now listen to the question again. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Now you can see it. The question itself is assuming that the tradition of the elders has the voice of God in it. A voice that is to be obeyed. And obeyed to the point of walking and conducting your life and obeying the commands that are in the tradition of the elders. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders. Watch Jesus' answer. Well did Isaiah prophesy, and note here, he's quoting authoritatively, saying that, the Lord, that Isaiah prophesied the very words of God. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. answer to the question, the reason why my disciples do not walk according to the tradition of the elders is because God's voice isn't in there. The tradition of the elders are doctrines created by man. These are commandments created by men. All under the pretense of having the authority of God behind it. Now, go back to your catechism class. Which commandment now is being broken by the Pharisees. And Jesus is exposing that. Second, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they've hijacked the name of Yahweh. It's kind of, this, is a, this is a bad analogy, but I think it works. All right, I've never traveled to Thailand or you know, at places where you can buy cheap knockoff polo shirts and Rolexes and things like this. I've heard of these things. I have not purchased them. New York City, there, there are streets in New York City. I have heard of that too. But, you know, so some guy, you know, you're walking down New York City and some guy with that strange trench coat goes like this. Like the, and you see watches. And you're thanking God. Thank you, Lord. Those are, <laughs> right, right. And so what they've done is they've stolen the Rolex logo and the Rolex name and they've put it on products that are not authorized, not made by Rolex. Right? So the breaking of the second commandment here is taking the designer name, Yahweh, the, the name of God, and slapping it on your schlocky, counterfeit, cheap, man-made knockoffs and claiming that God is the one responsible and He's the one speaking to you through these things. That's the idea. So Jesus is having none of it. This people honors me with their lips and their teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he says this, you leave the commandment of God. Now who's commanding you? 
God. So note, Jesus' assumption here is that God is commanding you through the Torah. And he says, you've left the command of God. God is actually speaking to you. Where is he speaking to you? In the written word of God. You leave the commandment of God and you are now holding to the tradition of men. Yikes. And I've made, this is a good analogy, but it's as if faith only has one hand. It's, you're either going to hold on to the voice and the commands of God and His promises or something bright and shiny and is going to distract you and you're going to let go of that and you're going to hold on to the other. And that's, that's always the case, isn't it? All right, let me give you an example. Mormonism. Mormonism, they say they believe in the Bible and the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and all of the prophecies that come from any living prophet from Joseph Smith onward you know, from Salt Lake City. Right? They, this, is, this is the truth. So you sit there and you go, Mr. Mormon, do you, believe it, do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God? Yes, I do. You know what the asterisk is, though. Yeah, right. as long as it's properly written. Yeah. They believe the Bible to be the Word of God as long as it's the King James Version. And insofar as it's correctly translated. Mm -hmm. So they've got all these interesting caveats. And here's how the game is played. You know, you say to the Mormon, you believe that you can become a god someday. Well, yes. The law of eternal progression states, they say, that as man is, God once was. As God is, man can become. That's the law of eternal progression. So we believe that our God was a man like us, and he became a god by following his god. And he said there, well, the prophet Isaiah says, the Lord says, before me no God was formed, nor will there be any after me. That's pretty decisive. And they say, well, that verse isn't correctly translated. Really, you know Hebrew. I don't need to. It can't be correctly translated because it contradicts Mormon doctrine. See how the game is played? They don't really believe the Bible, but they believe their stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Okay, so I, I saw an interesting... Uh, there was a YouTube video. You know, you get the recommends when you're on YouTube. We recommend this video. We recommend... This. And the video they were recommending that I look at, the headline read, Angel- Anglican Priestess says Bible is flawed and supports gay pride. Interesting headline. I watched the video, and, and sure enough, yeah, there was an Anglican priestess, so she was wearing a collar and everything. She was in favor of Pride Month, and when challenged on this, how can she do that? Because the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. She said the Bible is flawed. The Bible's flawed. So you pick whatever you want to believe. But see, how has Jesus approached this? It is written. God is speaking. God is commanded. He's speaking to us through His Word. This is the voice of God that we're hearing in the Scriptures. So He says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Now watch this. This is great when it comes to the doctrine of inspiration regarding the Scripture. Moses said... Now, trick question... Who said? Moses. Moses said. 
Honor your father and your mother. Fourth commandment. Whoever refiles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is a gift given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things. Moses said, word of God. So who wrote the Torah? Moses. Who's commanding us through the Torah? God. And this is the doctrine of inspiration. And let me, let me give you another text then from, uh, from 2 Peter. Two texts in particular. 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter writes. I'll start at verse 16. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You'll note that Peter here is referencing the, the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, we, we heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Now watch what he says. And this is Peter's last letter before he's going to be crucified for confessing Christ. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So of all the 66 books of the Scriptures, the written Word of God, although there be 40-something different authors, there's one common author in all of them. And that's God. And it's interesting that inspiration is not this, this thing where it's just this wooden... God said, now write these, this, these words. Good, you got it? Good, you got it. Now, now write these next words. And then it's not like that. As they're carried along, you'll note then that, I mean, stylistically, there's a huge difference between the way Peter writes and the way Paul writes. There's a ginormous difference between the grammar of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and the book of Revelation. I mean, it's, it's night and day. So you'll note that when God, the Holy Spirit, carries along a human author and inspires them to actually write these words, that it doesn't overpower the person to where they're like channeling a spirit like in the New Age. But that, that inspiration means that their normal way of writing, their grammatical errors, their idioms, then get used by the Holy Spirit or embedded in that text so that the human author's... Um, style and flair and even the, the, some of their personality, that's not dissolved in that. That's now embedded and scripturated for us. It's there. So Moses said, but God is the one commanding. 
Moses said God is the one commanding. And so you get the idea here. Now, I want to show you this. Did you know that Peter believed that the Apostle Paul was writing Scripture? Did you know that? 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Uh, Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him, that's Christ, without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And if you remember, uh, Paul wrote an epistle to the church at Rome called Romans, right? Peter here is making reference to that very body of work, that the actual epistle of Romans, uh, because Peter spent his ministry time near the end of his life in the city of Rome. This is true. And so, uh, as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable, they twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Isn't that interesting? Peter thinks Paul's writings are on the same level as the Tanakh. Isn't that interesting? Consider what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, kind of wrapping up his commands as far as cleaning up the abuses of the spiritual gifts that were occurring in the church of Corinth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 36, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one that it has reached? So if anyone thinks he's a prophet or thinks he's spiritual... He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So you'll note that even here, Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians, believes that Christ himself is commanding us through what he's written. That his words that are written down, have the very weight of God behind them. And who was it that sent the Apostle Paul, by the way? Jesus. Jesus sent him. And the gospel he preached, he claims he did not receive it from a human being. He received it by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. So the question then is, we know that Christ, we know that Jesus said of the Old Testament that this is the Word of God, that God is commanding people through it. His voice is heard in the writings of Moses and Isaiah and of the authors of First and Second Kings, of Judges and Joshua, of Amos and Malachi, that God Himself is speaking to us, commanding us, through these words. This is Jesus' opinion. But what about the disciples? Okay, Remember what our text was. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who hears me, hears the one who sent me. Jesus wrote zero books in his lifetime. And yet Christ is commanding us through the gospel writers. He's informing us, telling us ahead of time, commanding us to repent, to be forgiven, to believe, assuring us of the forgiveness of our sins. We, we, we take his words and we put red letters on it, but he didn't write those words. But he sure did speak them. 
And they were recorded for us, and now Christ is speaking to us through these texts. So consider then what Jesus says about the disciples. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but I also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus put a stamp of approval on the apostles that he sent and said, and even prayed for all of us in his high priestly prayer, who believe in Jesus through the words that they wrote. And you'll remember what Peter said in 1 Peter, that the gospel itself is the living, abiding word of God that endures forever. He's assuming that what he's writing is Scripture that it's the Word of God. Paul assumes what he's writing is the Word of God. Christ even prayed for every one of us who believe through their words. So, where can you go today to hear the voice of God? The scriptures, right. Now, let me show you the job of a pastor real quick. Okay. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4. Paul writing to young pastor Timothy, a pastor of a congregation in the city of Ephesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, if there's any question as to which word he's talking about, just back up into chapter 3 and you'll see it. He says this, As for you, chapter 3, verse 14, Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, grammata, the sacred. And what? look at the word, sacred writings. Not just any old writings, sacred writings. Holy writings. We call it the Holy Bible. It is a sacred text. What makes it sacred and holy? It's, these are God's words. God's voice is speaking through it. So you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now he says this, All Scripture, grafe, is theonoustos, breathed out by God. So I can say with absolute, 100% certainty, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And you'll note then that breathed out by God is kind of intimately in, connected to the concept of spirit. Pneuma. Okay? All Scripture is, say, a stas, Breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, which no one likes to do, for correction, which no one does anymore, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. First of all, Scripture here, are you referring to the Old Testament or are you referring to what has not yet become the New Testament? Uh, the answer is second, and it has to be because when he wrote 1 Corinthians, 
He made it very clear. First Corinthians is the first epistle that Paul writes. First. It's the oldest of his epistles. And he makes it very clear in his first epistle that what he's writing is a command of the Lord. He's fully aware that he's writing Scripture. And we know this for a fact because Peter himself is acknowledging that, Peter's write, that Paul's writings are the very Word of God. That they are Scripture themselves. Exactly. He's in, with the clo- and Second Timothy is his final. First Timothy, so, so Second Timothy is his last letter. This is the one that he writes from prison days, weeks before he's beheaded. He's anticipating the close of the canon with the death of the apostles. I mean, they're getting long of tooth at this point, right? We all do. So all Scripture, it's breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then chapter 4, job of a pastor. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom to what? Preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, Complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Listen to this. They will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Scripture told us this ahead of time. But the job of a pastor is to what? Preach the Word. So the idea then is, is that when a pastor preaches the Word, rightly handles the biblical texts, it is no longer the pastor who's making his appeal to the congregation. It's God Himself. But if he's mangling the Word of God, he's manipulating the biblical texts, adding to the biblical texts myths and stories and doctrines that are man-made and things like this, then he's making void the Word of God. And no pastor is authorized to preach anything other than the Word. Consider what's in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Paul says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put away what remained in order and appoint elders. These are going to be your presbyteroi. These are your pastors in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So in Christ's church, Christ's words are the things to be preached. The Word of God is to be rightly handled, not manipulated, taught in its purity, so that people can be brought to repentance. And that when that happens, we are confident that then God is speaking to us all. Not because the pastor is so amazing, but because the Word of God is the Word of God. And so when somebody starts to manipulate and to teach false doctrine, Scripture is very clear what happens next. 
So a pastor must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So note that there's the expectation that there will be false teachers who manipulate the Word of God, and God wills for them to be silenced. So there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers. They are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And listen to this. They must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Seems kind of basic, doesn't it? But is it? In our day, I, I cannot, I've lost track of all of the different ways that people make excuses for people who are teaching false doctrine. All right, I'll give you an example. This past week, it came to light that Beth Moore has gone back through her previous books, and in her previous books where she has talked about the sin of homosexuality, she has re-edited those books and removed all references to homosexuality being a sin. Back in the middle part of June, a group of women put together an open letter to Beth Moore asking her straightforwardly what her position was regarding homosexuality. They were uncertain about it. And this past week, someone on social media took a photograph of one of Beth Moore's older books published before last year. And in that section, in that book, she talks about the sin of homosexuality. Somebody chimed in and said, yeah, I have the new Kindle version of that, and that section of the book is missing. Beth Moore chimed in herself and said that after careful reflection, she realized that she had said things that, out, that outweigh, that go beyond Scripture, they exceed Scripture, and that the fruit of what she had written was keeping people from the grace of God. But when you read what she wrote, she merely talked about the fact that homosexuality was a sin and that people can be set free from it and that Christ has bled and died for that. So now you have to ask yourself the question. When somebody says, a pastor says, homosexuality is a sin, in thought, word, and deed, has that person exceeded God's word or have they said the same thing as God's word? Beth Moore says it's an, it exceeds God's word. And not only that, she is now publicly labeled anybody who says that as being a hyper-fundamentalist. Is she saying the truth? Are we hearing the voice of God in the statements she is making? Or are we hearing a contrary voice? What does the text say? Well, let's take a look at the text. 1 Corinthians 6. Wouldn't that mean all the authors are hyper-fundamentalists? Yeah, apparently God himself is too. (laughs) Of course, Jesus, I mean, he's so out of step. I mean, Jesus, remember, he said that God created us male and female. (laughs) That's a salacious statement today. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul... And this is the text where Paul, this is the book where Paul says what he's writing is a command of God. 
Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. Okay. As strange as this sounds, there is a growing group of people within the visible church who are challenging the idea that adultery is a sin. And it makes perfect sense in light of what's going on. Challenging it. But Paul says that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And now it says, nor the men who practice homosexuality. Now, I'm going to read this in the, in the Greek real quick. Hute moxoi, hute malakoi, hute arsenikoitai. And so the ESV translates it, men who practice homosexuality. It, it describes two different types of homosexuals in the Greek, the malakoi and the arsenikoitai. The malakoi are the effeminate. If you were to think of it, even homosexual relationships, somebody has to be the receiver, the other has to be the, the giver. All right. It was funny, this past week I was at Lowe's, and I bought a new hose. I needed an extension. And I got the hose at home, home and it was in a nice package, and pulled it out, and it was a homosexual hose. It, only, it had two male ends. I couldn't connect it to anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went back to Lowe's, and I said, you guys sold me a gay hose. <laughs> I have photographs if you want to see it. Yeah, actually, yeah, I do. I actually, but anyway, so yeah, they still be a gay hose. <laughs> but uh, but in that particular case, you had two male ends. But even in a homosexual relationship, one has to play the the effeminate role, and the other plays the dominant male role. And so, uh, the text here then is saying the 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 malakoi are the 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 receivers, and the arsenikoitai. Arsenikoitai means the man better. And it's an interesting phrase because arsenikoitai itself comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation from the book of Leviticus, talking about the prohibition that you, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. And in the, in the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek translation of the Tanakh, in Leviticus it talks about the, the arsenos and, and, and the man better, you know, sleeping with a man the way you would with a woman. It says this, this is an abomination. And so you note then, the text itself says that this includes the homosexual. Now, note, we're not singling anybody out here. That, you know, adulterers are going to be your heterosexual adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. This is a, this is a homosexual sin. And then it adds to the list. Thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the problem, and that is, is that this is quite an interesting list because each and every one of us at one point or another is guilty of being one of these things. Because even Christ himself has made it clear that we are murderers if we hate our brother, that we are adulterers even if we look at somebody who is not our spouse with lust in our hearts. You don't have to physically do the deed here. In fact, even coveting itself has us fall short, and coveting is a sin of the heart. So this includes all of us. But watch what he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
Now, I, I would argue that if somebody is unrighteous, and the, the list of deeds include all of these things, including homosexuality, homosexuality is a sin. It does not exceed Scripture to say that people need to repent of this sin and to be forgiven. That Christ has bled and died for them. And He wants them to be pardoned, forgiven, absolved, given new life, set free. This is, and am I saying anything different than what the scriptures say when I say that? But when Beth Moore says that you have exceeded scripture when you say homosexuality is a sin, are you hearing the voice of God or are you hearing the voice of Beth Moore? That's the question. What does Beth Moore say about us greedy folks? What does she say about the drunkards? What does she say? I mean... Yes, she's a little thin when it comes to preaching law correctly and then preaching the gospel. Seems to be missing. Yeah. And, uh, and she's even now uh, changed her policy. She, you know, she's, she's a public teacher, uh, but she even recently preached a sermon in a church, which was like a first for her. Up, up, up until very recently, she never preached a sermon before. And now she's even preaching sermons contrary to the express command of God. So, at the end of the day, the question is, who is saying the same thing as Scripture? Because when that person says the same thing as Scripture, then they're saying the same things as God, as Christ. And who is saying their own things? Because when they're saying their own things, they're not speaking God's authority anymore. They're not speaking the voice of God. They're speaking their own minds, their own hearts. The commandments of men rather than the voice of God. And we are instructed. Let me end with this text. Consider what was written for us in Deuteronomy chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises, and there's a lot of people out there claiming that they've received a prophecy or a dream or whatever, and they give you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder takes place. It actually happens. Jesus warns us about a similar thing in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, where he says that in the last times that there will be false Christs and false prophets who will perform megas, great signs and wonders. And then when you read the Greek, hosta, hosta, so that they can deceive. So there will be, in the, even the end times, great signs and wonders performed by people and the purpose of those signs and wonders is to deceive people and to mislead, if possible, to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Christ has told us that ahead of time. So, that, so God in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament version of that warning then, says that a dreamer of dreams arises and performs a sign or wonder. And it comes to pass. But he says, let us go after other gods. Let's serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear Him, His commandments, and listen to the phrase, obey His voice. So you'll note then, the expectation is, is that you have heard this text and that when your faith is being tested even by somebody performing great signs and wonders, you are to listen to the voice of God. 
And where did you learn that? In the written word. And so even Deuteronomy, Moses here is anticipating and fully expecting and believes that you're hearing the voice of God himself in what he's written for us. And warned us ahead of time of competing voices that will even have signs and wonders accompany them that are preaching a different message altogether and proclaiming a different Christ, a different gospel, a different God to lead us astray. While claiming to be part of us, But they're not. And how do you know? Because their words do not comport with the voice of God that we have and we know for sure we're hearing in the written text. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.